Hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the history of inspiration behind and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have the amazing Alexander Petikoff with me. Hi, Alex. What's going on, Heather? How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to have you on here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, awesome to be talking with you. You're really awesome yourself. So I think it's a, it's a good meeting of the minds. Yay. <laughs> um, so first of all, I want to have you kind of introduce yourself to anybody who may not be aware of who you are, which shouldn't be a problem, but just in case they're new to the channel, um, can you introduce your connection to the cryptid community? Yeah, I'm just some guy who goes in the woods and looks for stuff. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So uh, yeah, I'm a filmmaker and adventurer. I like to call myself an outdoorsman, um, but uh, I've been interested in cryptozoology since I was a kid, got into reading books about it, um, and kind of about five or six or seven years ago at this point, man, time flies, I got into actually getting out in the field, doing documentaries about various cryptid stories, mostly Bigfoot, and that's kind of been the trend, and uh, I met Seth back in 2016 or so, and uh, we started working together on various productions, and yeah, uh, like I said, now I'm pretty much a guy that goes out in the woods and looks for cryptids and mostly Bigfoot, but uh, that's, that, that's, I guess, the short version. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned books when you were younger, and so that is going to be one of my first questions, is what, what are some of the books that you remember from when you were young that sparked your interest in this? Yeah, so I remember uh, it was books and documentaries. I was really into like dinosaurs and paleontology when I was a kid, and that sort of went right into, I guess, Bigfoot and cryptozoology in some way. So I was always reading books at the library that had like the chapters on the weirdness and Bigfoot and a lot of these books that uh, would mix together, you know, the UFOs, ghosts, it was kind of like a general paranormal sort of book and Bigfoot and cryptids would be in there as well. I remember this one, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it had this very bright yellow cover and there was this almost green Grinch looking Bigfoot creature sitting on it. And I have the book, I just don't remember the name of it, but that was one that stuck out because that was before I was reading very well, there was pictures. So I was always looking at the pictures and I remember they were talking about woolly mammoths possibly still being around. And they had pictures of famous carcasses like the Zoo Maru carcass of an alleged plesiosaur found by a Japanese ship in the seventies. And a lot of these other stories that are sort of staples of cryptozoology, that was one in particular. But then when I got more proficient, you know, I started reading more literature on the subjects and John Bindernagel, who's a really good author, really favorite, one of my favorites, uh, Jeff Meldrum, of course, when it comes specifically to Bigfoot, uh, Sasquatch Legends Meet Science. And then, you know, in high school, I started reading blogs. So it was a lot of the blog stuff. It was people like Lauren Coleman with Crypto Mundo. That's how you kind of kept in touch that was you know kind of before youtube where you couldn't really find out or youtube or twitter or any of this kind of stuff so that's how you found out about stuff going on i vividly remember the the 2008 georgia bigfoot body hoax and following that intensely on crypto mundo the blog and lauren coleman and others would post daily updates about what was going on and what steve coles was doing and trying to out the you know people like tom biscardi so yeah it was it was a, a variety of sources but i have a it's kind of behind me, a book collection with a lot of the old Bigfoot books that I read and some of the new ones I've picked up along the way. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned being into paleontology, which did you have a favorite dinosaur? Oh, boy. I just, <laughs> I, I think velociraptors are just cool. I mean, I was a kid in the okay. 90s, so there was just Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. 
yep. he was all the rage. So <laughs> it's like you're, you're pretty much sold on that kind of thing. And and I I lived in New York City when my parents and I first came to this country in the mid '90s, and you know we didn't have like a car or anything. You don't really need one in New York, but we were just kind of immigrants, poor immigrants in New York City. So we used to go to the Natural History Museum almost every day. I remember going there, and they have sort of a pay as, as much as you want kind of policy, which people don't really know. They try to say that admission's like 25 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, we, we couldn't really do that. So we would just put a little bit in there. You know, you could put just, you could put in a quarter if you really want to. And that's just kind of like a little secret about the Natural History Museum. But, <laughs> but I remember going there all the time and I became obsessed with not only the dinosaur section, but the, they, I love those sort of um, ones with those stuffed animals where they have them in their like natural settings and scenes and, uh, just a lot of stuff that that's I think uh, got me really into nature as well and uh the zoo in in Central Park we used to go there too and that was kind of before I started school so I would I remember going to those as a kid and you know once we got out of New York and moved to New Hampshire and I was you know surrounded by woods and there's like a lot of wilderness up here so that's where that fascination really kind of took off from there but um definitely I credit the Museum of Natural History for setting me sort of in that path and especially when it came to dinosaurs and that sort of stuff that's awesome when you moved to new hampshire then were you out exploring the woods all the time oh yeah i was it was like that classic uh, kids might come back when the sun goes down maybe maybe you could get right. them back so we lived right. in an area that had sort of little it was like a little bridge that went over this uh, little river and uh, there was just woods all, it was apartment complexes but there was woods all around so kids could just kind of wander around and um, you know, there was like a fenced off section because there was like a highway behind it, but uh, we were just running around the woods other than that, you know, year round. And I remember that it was just a lot of fun. That's awesome. Were there stories um, in that particular area that kind of sparked your imagination while you were out there? Like, were you aware of anything that had happened or were you imagining that maybe you'd run into some sort of creature or dinosaur or something? Yeah, I, I mean, as a kid, you know, you act out all kinds of stuff and whether it's playing Jurassic Park or Star Wars, when it's snowing out, you're pretending you're on Hoth or something, yeah. um, that, that sort of stuff. But no, nothing really. I mean, it wasn't until later that I became aware of the actual folklore of you know the state of New Hampshire. I didn't really have like a family connection to it. You know, we just it, it was happened to be a place that we moved and I've really definitely embraced the state overall. And there's a lot of interesting folklore going back to, you know, the colonial days, there's uh, New England in general is a very haunted kind of area. Now, I'm not really into ghosts, but there are tons, you know, there's Salem's not that far. You've got uh, Boston, a lot of these, and these are, you know, some of the first places settled, of course, the Bridgewater Triangle, just about a few hours south from me here, where there's a lot of history, you know, there's a lot of bloodshed between uh, the, the natives and the settlers and you know, the various colonies and everything. And there was a lot of inter-conflict there as well. The French and Indian Wars were really big in this whole area. And I mean, up until that point, it was just extremely rugged wilderness. I mean, there's some pretty rugged mountains up here, you know, from uh, Southern New England and then going into Northern New England, that's where you have the Northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail that runs through Vermont, New York, or it goes through New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and up into Maine. That's where the Appalachian Trail ends. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, indigenous tribes in the area. Uh, in this particular area was the Algonquian-speaking tribe. So groups like the Abenaki, they were mostly in New Hampshire, and they had different bands and different groups. They were a little less organized than their main rivals, which were the, the, the Iroquois. You know, the Iroquois had their confederacy and the Mohawks and all those various kind of groups in that confederacy, and they used to go to war together. 
Um, but uh, there's also the Wampanoag. That's those are the guys that interacted with the uh, settlers down in Plymouth. So one of the you know kind of early English colonies here. And um, you know, there's just a lot. There's been a lot of that sort of stuff for hundreds of years. And then these forests were clear cut essentially a couple hundred years ago, multiple times. So there was a lot of the forests, the native, the old growth forests were destroyed. That pushed a lot of the animals out. And before that, there were moose. Uh, plenty of black bear, wolves, mountain lions, a lot of different critters on the landscape that were all sort of pushed out. Um, and then they've, they've since returned and that's kind of a story unto itself because now states like Maine and New Hampshire are some of the most forested states in the country, which is interesting. But uh, so going back to the point about ghost stories, you know, you, you go to places like Providence, Rhode Island or Boston, Massachusetts, Salem, Massachusetts, there's just a lot of ghost stories, you know, haunted hotels, the Mount Washington Hotel, the it's now called the Omni Resort uh, near Mount Washington in the White Mountains, supposedly really haunted. You know, there's a they do ghost hunting kind of tours there all the time, and there's just a lot there. And I've just never really been into that. So for me, the Bigfoot stuff and the cryptids is where is that. And there's plenty of that around here too. But um, there are a lot of ghost stories, and there's haunted graveyards, and and there's also the Puckwudgies and stuff like that. So there's a lot of folklore here that's not really cryptid related, but then there is cryptid related stuff too. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about the forest being clear cut, uh, the one time that I've been in New England, that was something that was brought to my attention as well, that it's all new growth there. But there was also something really unique there, to me anyway, having been in the woods here, there were a lot of similarities that I saw, but one of the biggest differences were these uh, walls in the woods, just because what, they were at one point like boundaries, obviously, right, for properties, but it's just, it, that in itself to me is creepy that there's just it, walls in the woods. Yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, you know, when you get in Ohio and I've been to Ohio, obviously multiple times, whether it's in your area or just even in the past, um, there's a lot more old growth, I think in Ohio. I see there was definitely patches that were left here. The only ones you find that are really from that time period, they have these, I think they're called King James Pines where they were kind of designated. And they're ones that you can find in the middle of the woods that are just massive and they were ones that were spared but so when it comes to the walls yeah a lot of people get surprised by that uh so they were typically these areas a lot of these especially in the, you know kind of middle new england where it's more rolling hills it's not like the super you know four thousand uh four thousand foot plus mountains like you have up a few hours north of me here a little more rolling so they used they clear cut this area and they had a lot of sheep and agriculture and they would mark their boundaries by stacking these rock walls and uh, I've heard that they were boundary markers. I've also heard burn markers. So if they wanted to burn sort of field in one area, wouldn't spread to another. I'm sure it was probably used for both. You know, there are so many of them that they're definitely property boundaries. But now for in just New Hampshire specifically, I mean, I can go hiking in the middle of what I think are some <clears throat> seriously remote woods and run into walls in the middle of nowhere. All that land has been reclaimed. So uh, like my personal sort of Bigfoot research area where there's a history of reports there's a rock wall in the middle of it. I can hike a few miles in and hit a rock wall that will just go for quite a while because uh, 300 years ago, there was not a lot of forest in that very spot. But now that same forest supports moose, which are one of the largest animals around here. I mean, they can get up to 1200 pounds at the, at the largest, you know, a full grown adult uh, moose male. You've got black bear, uh, bobcat, tons of deer. I mean, I get trail cameras in my ear and I get deer and I've gotten bear, I've gotten moose, I've gotten a lot of stuff, but mostly deer. So there's a ton of them. So a lot of these areas, like I said, they were 
you know, you think you're in the middle of nowhere and then you just hit a rock wall and you are in the middle of nowhere. It just wasn't the middle of nowhere that long ago. So those animals and that wildlife and that ecosystem has returned in the new growth, which is actually really interesting. I, th- I personally think that Sasquatch probably did the sort of same thing with these other things returning, you know, they maybe came into an area. Have you that, noticed you know, previously wasn't right, right. Well, going back to the historical record, as far as Sasquatch sightings that were in the area versus now, would you say then that there has been an uptick in sightings from what you've noticed um, just doing research? Yeah, there does seem to be in the modern era. I think it's just there's an overall more of an awareness about the subject. So when it comes to Sasquatch, it's really difficult to kind of quantify. I have a lot of thoughts on the topic, obviously doing a lot, you know, regarding it. But when it comes to sightings in, you know, in the past, there were those historical newspaper clippings of wild men being seen, sometimes being described as eight feet tall. And then it turned into gorilla when those became known. And I, I think a lot of those newspaper clippings were maybe a little bit hyperbolic. They played up the elements. I mean, I think at the time as well, mental illness wasn't really understood. So people that maybe were different went off in the woods and they kind of lived that lifestyle. And that, that maybe is part of it. But, uh, you know, for example, in my research area, there's a report of a gorilla scaring two boys out squirrel hunting in 1895. And, you know, very kind of strange, very specific sort of way it was worded and it was coming out of the bushes and scared them off with noises. And it really kind of interesting, uh, you know, makes you wonder why that kind of stuff is being reported. There's other reports like that. But I think once you get more into you know, the post-World War II, that's really when the majority of sightings, at least in the databases, are from that time frame and afterwards. Um, that's, you know, the, the lifespan of most people, right? I mean, we're not, there's not many people alive that saw something maybe 1910 that are able to report it, but somebody that was a kid in the fifties or sixties, they can, they, they put reports out, especially now, like they might sit on a report for 40, 50 years. Uh, There's so many people here in new England. I think that's a cultural phenomenon. So place like Ohio, Bigfoot's kind of been in Ohio, at least publicly known since the nineties, right? It's been a little bit more of a popular topic as opposed to most of the country, uh, you know, aside from the Pacific Northwest, which is typically that Bigfoot sort of area where it's not really taboo to talk about it. In places like New England to this day, it's still pretty taboo. I mean, I, I talk to witnesses regularly who say that, well, I saw this thing 30 years ago and I didn't even think Bigfoot. I didn't even, they either didn't know what it was or they thought Bigfoot was in the Pacific Northwest. So they thought they were seeing some kind of monster or something else that like they didn't even think Bigfoot until years later when they actually heard or, or saw a show or heard a podcast or something. And, you know, I've got a couple of people that have had encounters that it wasn't until seeing a program on TV that they said, well, that, that happened to me. Maybe that thing I encountered was Bigfoot, you know, like very specific sort of stuff like that, that to me is an indicative of some sort of behavioral patterns that a species would show. So if Sasquatch is indeed a biological entity, it, it would have to have certain traits and things that, that it does. And that's where I think eyewitness reports in general come the most in handy is where you have a body of them you can look at. And obviously there's going to be a percentage of them that are misidentifications or hoaxes, but then there's those that can't be simply weeded out for those purposes that are clearly, you know, showing these people believe what they saw. I can't say, I can't tell them I know what they saw, but you get that body of, of, you know, anecdotal evidence together. You can start noticing patterns. Are there sightings in certain areas are there sightings in specific locations with certain resources, certain types of other wildlife seen in that area, food sources possibly, and then the behavior. So, you know, are we experiencing more wood knocking in certain area or, uh, you know, 
stuff touching tents, trying to interact with people in campgrounds, that sort of stuff. And um, you know, I've got about 60 something reports in my New Hampshire sightings database that I've been doing since about 2016 when I first started being told stories. And these are ones that I've never been able to find online anywhere else. Uh, they're either reported to me now, especially through YouTube. I've got a lot of sightings actually through Beyond the Trail. You know, the first episode was a New Hampshire specific episode and people would post in the comments and I would say, hey, can you email me here or can I reach out to you? And I've actually talked to quite a few people through that method, but uh, I've done library talks as well about the Granite State Bigfoot, um, Bigfoot in New Hampshire. And I'll always get a couple of people that tell me their stories afterwards and fill out a sighting report certain events I've met people. So these are people that, you know, they haven't reported their sighting to something like the BFRO or other online databases. And a lot of times uh, people have connected me to other folks who maybe have had a sighting and it's like pulling teeth to get them to talk about it. And then right. once they may, maybe they trust you, they'll tell you the story. And that right. for me is really interesting because again, it's, you know, it, they truly believe what they saw. Right. And I don't understand why they are making this story up if they're not doing anything with it. You right. literally have to pull teeth to get them to tell the story. They'll tell yeah. you once. They There's say, no I don't, wanna be, I don't yeah. want to be on camera. I don't want you recording my voice, but I'll let you tell, you know, write the story down or I'll write it down for you. That's it. They don't want this story to get out there aside from, you know, being in a, in a database where I'm able to reference it then or, you know, hopefully be able to kind of pass it on to somebody that might be looking for patterns or in terms of data and that sort of stuff. So that's the biggest thing I think with this topic is the eyewitness sightings for me is what really keeps me going because there is a lot of BS, unfortunately, in the Bigfoot world. There's a lot of hoaxing, a lot of people who are, you know, pulling people's, uh, pulling the wool over people's eyes. And I think that's unfortunate, but um, whenever that kind of stuff happens and the, the, the drama that's involved with the so-called Bigfoot community, um, it's the eyewitness sightings that actually keep interesting me. You know, I'll get uh, a reporter, I mean, just a, you know, as an example, uh, it was, I think, end of November, I was at a, you know, Parafest up in, in Maine, right on the New Hampshire border. And uh, there was a couple of people that approached my table and told me about their sightings they, they had in Maine. And one of them was a guy who was snowmobiling with, I think, eight other people up in way northern Maine, the middle of nowhere. And they saw one of these things, Sasquatch, as he claimed it was, cross a, a trail in between a logging road in an area crossed in the clear cut and went across and they made a noise and it whooped back at them and then went in the woods. And that's just like a recent one. And I've gotten a bunch of other ones through, through Facebook. I actually, some of most of the sightings I get, I, I think are the better ones too, are, are from non Bigfoot related sources. So um, people will comment on, you know, some of our videos or stuff like that, but then Facebook groups, there'll be like New Hampshire hiking or backpacking groups. And People will always ask, anyone experienced anything weird? And then there's the deluge of comments about, well, I saw this when I was hiking or we had rocks thrown at us and I reach out to people that way. And I've actually got quite a bit of updating to do on my database uh, of a post from a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's, it's yeah, the eyewitness sightings are absolutely fascinating. And um, hopefully that answers the question. I think I just kind of went on yeah. a tangent, no, uh, <laughs> whatever the question was, but <laughs> When you get uh, like of all of the sightings that have been reported to you or that you've that you've read in some of these forums, is there one that really stands out to you as very unique, um, or anything? Yeah, just, yeah, it's just not left your memory since you've read it or heard it. That's a really good question. It's a tricky one. So I'm looking actually at my database here. So I actually have 71 reports. So oh, that's plug your database. Is that public? No, it's not. So oh, it is right. not because 
Don't plug uh, it, I, Alex. I can I can share it with you I'm because I know you. Um, and <laughs> just... that's what I usually that's what I usually do is if people ask me, I will share it with them because I withhold yeah. from that database. It's it's just like a Google Doc, and then I have right. um, you know backed up. And basically, what happens is I'm hoping to be able to compile some of these into a book of some sort. Um, you know, I've looked into maybe doing some sort of a thing on my website, but mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of these online databases, and sometimes these people. I mean, even if you withhold personal details you'd have to kind of get permission for people yeah, to yeah. really do that. Whereas no, I that. I've got the permission to at least just kind of publish it anonymously and right. that sort of thing. I so, um, but, uh, but yeah, I'd be happy to share it with you, Heather, of course, but in terms of a really interesting one that sticks out, there's a lot of them, but I'm going to go with one that I, this one wasn't actually even submitted to me, but uh, it's a report. And I actually got to speak to the gentleman, but it was something that was reported in a newspaper in North Conway, New Hampshire, which is sort of a touristy place. That's right at the foothills of the white mountains that in Lincoln, New Hampshire, the two towns that tourists go to for skiing, you know, sightseeing in the fall when the foliage is around, the summer sports, all that kind of stuff. But it was the Conway Daily Sun newspaper, I believe. It was from mid-2000s. There's an article about this kind of small geologic mountain range just south of the White Mountains called the Ossipee Range, which if you look at it, I don't know what kind of, uh, what there's a specific term for the type of formation, but it's almost circular, the way the geology works there. It's really interesting. And that area has a reputation for the Ossipee Triangle. There's UFOs, there's weird stuff possibly involving Aleister Crowley praying on a mountain up there with some wow. kind of sacrificial table when he was in the US. There's a lot of weird stuff, but <laughs> you're not necessarily saying that's related to Bigfoot, but there, are, there is some pretty right. interesting Bigfoot stuff there. And what this report was 1979, this gentleman and his girlfriend at the time with their dog were bushwhacking up this mountain called Bald Mountain, really in the middle of nowhere. You have to go up to this pond called Connor Pond. And I've been up there. It's still tough to get up there today. It's a really bad dirt road, middle of nowhere pond, good for fishing. And there's a couple little small, you know, 3,000 plus foot mountains just right in the back. And one of them is Bald Mountain. Uh, there's some kind of old cabin that's been dilapidated up there that you can try to bushwhack to. But it's, it's, there's really no trails. It's just straight bushwhacking. But in 1979, this gentleman from just over the border in Maine was up there uh, looking. He was a mineral collector and he was just looking for quartz and that sort of stuff and there's you know the mountains have a lot of different rock characteristics you've got granite there's a lot of granite up here uh, limestone other sorts of things that you know somebody that's into that's curious so they were hiking up in this area and they came across this kind of little clear cut on one of these ledges and there was this stacked stone structure with a hemlock branch sort of roof and they kind of froze and inside they said there was this massive creature sitting there with its back towards them but it was just massive hairy hulking kind of figure and you could see almost knots in the fur and everything and the dog noticed it and started growling and this thing let out some kind of a guttural noise and uh and they fled instantly and just ran away and went down the side of the mountain realized halfway down that they have a camera but they couldn't muster the strength to go back up there yeah as much as that i'm sure we, we probably we probably wish nowadays but uh, <laughs> i actually got to interview this gentleman i tracked down the journalist who it was a story about the ospie mountains and they mentioned this tale you know the edit the 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 journalist said this was his friend who had seen this so i reached out to this journalist a few years ago it must have been 2017 i asked him do you know anything about you know this gentleman he's like oh yeah he's my friend but good luck trying to get him to talk about it so I, he gave me the number and I managed to give him a call and he actually told me the entire story. Uh, and, you know, when I asked if you, if you'd be okay with me calling again, maybe to record it at a later date or something like that, maybe interview him on camera. He said, you know, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I'll tell you the story now. And 
write down whatever you'd like. And that's, that's basically it. And he said that the, there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think about the story and doesn't know what it was, you know, still pretty confused about what it was. Um, there are other details to the story as well from later on, but yeah, he struck me as pretty sincere. Like he wasn't trying to gain anything with that story. And, and the reason why I think it's so interesting of, of all the really interesting Bigfoot encounters that I've heard from New Hampshire, let alone from other places, because at this point we hear stories from every corner of the country with beyond the trail and just all the places we've been. Uh, but that story in particular, because there's this whole kind of debate in the Bigfoot world about structures and tree twists and tree bends. And I, I personally think a lot of that is, is natural, you know, snowfall, snow load and primitive survivalists. Like I used to do that sort of stuff when we would build debris shelters and that starts deteriorating in a few years, it'll be just a couple of stacked sticks and oh, maybe that's a Bigfoot structure. So I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of wishful thinking when it comes to Bigfoot research and amateur research. But like I said, the structure debate, I've only ever heard of a few stories where there was really some really crazy sort of structures that hard to imagine a human would do that in such a location. And this was one of them where this thing was seen inside of it. Now, whether or not it built it, I don't know. But this gentleman said that he couldn't make it back to the spot for another year. Um, whether or not, I think it was probably a mix of the weather conditions and the fact that he just couldn't muster the strength to get back up there. But he managed to get up there. And he said when he got to that spot, there was nothing there. There was no trace of anything left. And you know, that's the only report I've ever heard of something like that, especially around here. I mean, I don't think these things use structures for the most part. Um, we did get more reports, but you know, maybe it was some old survivalist hut that something happened to be in, you know, whether or not it was even a Sasquatch, I don't know. I mean, was it something else? Was it a crazy person out in the woods with a some kind of a strange cloak on? Because he never said it was a Bigfoot. He just, he said it was very strange and the sound was unlike anything he'd ever heard before and it really freaked them out that's what actually sent them running so that's that's definitely one of the more unique ones but there oh man there's so many i could i could go on all day with those stories oh man that i'm surprised that he went back because i feel like a lot of people that would be in that situation wouldn't go back again or even go back in the woods period whether they go to that spot at all yeah, I've noticed that with a lot of witnesses, if, especially if it's traumatic, they don't want to go back in there. I mean, there's stories of hunters not wanting to go back into the woods after what they've experienced. I mean, I, I just finished, obviously, editing the Minerva, the Monster of Minerva, which just came out. And the, uh, the Mike, the, the golf course guy that we interviewed, you know, he was talking about the first witness they had on that property. He said he's never going back into that part of the woods again because of what he saw. So you hear you do hear stories like that. And it really is intriguing. Um because again, these people, they're seeing something they really believe was there. And, you know, those of us on the outside that haven't experienced it, when we can only really sympathize with them and try to understand what it was that they saw, because I can't tell them 100% that they saw Bigfoot. So that, that's where it gets tricky. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things. And I think a lot of people are very dismissive of eyewitnesses altogether and say, oh, well, humans are terrible observers. It's all baloney. They're, they're, maybe they're not all liars, but they're all deceiving themselves you know and it's you get to a point where that kind of thinking becomes more hard to believe than well people are actually seeing something out there because i mean how it's what are we projecting this out there i mean i don't know it's 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 a very contentious kind of thing but i think that um like i said these people are they believe what they've seen i'm not here to deny or confirm but i'd love to see what i can gain in terms of any kind of knowledge or data or anything like that because the eyewitness uh, information a lot of times isn't, I mean, it's useful when it's in a big bunch like that, or to maybe find out 
about um, you know patterns or anything like that. But a single report, I mean, doesn't really tell you a lot if it's from 30 years ago. I mean, there's no way to go back and do any kind of evaluating. I mean, if it's a fresh report from last week, maybe you can go out there and find tracks or some kind of other evidence. So you can have corroborating evidence, which I think is wonderful. And I think that approach is one that I think more Bigfoot researchers should look at, you know, prioritize getting out to the location of a recent sighting so we can maybe have some follow-up evidence. Otherwise, you know, the stories are great and they make for great stories and these sightings. And I, I really do sympathize with the people that have had these experiences. A lot of times, especially as I mentioned, when they're traumatic, uh, they have to go through a process. And I know a couple of witnesses that had to be basically coached into, you know, talking about their stories even openly or anything like that. And it's why would they choose to subjugate themselves to this if it's all just in their heads or it's uh, they're trying to get on TV or whatever? I, I don't know. It does. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. When talking about the data that you can accumulate in different areas, if there's a, a like a cluster of sightings over a particular period of time, have you noticed any unique characteristics that stand out in one geographic area versus another? I mean, like Bigfoot as this entity, just in general, we can come up with certain characteristics, just, oh, it's a hairy creature that, you know, whatever, but are there things that stick out in the Pacific Northwest versus the like New England versus whenever you're down south or I mean are there unique aspects to this creature yeah I mean it seems to be you know nothing really coming off the top of my head in terms of specifics but I think the re their, their regional adaptabilities or adaptations there seems to be you know the Pacific Northwest is a very very different environment from South Florida in the Everglades where the ground is constantly wet and you've got all these other crazy animals that are out there from alligators to snakes and that sort of stuff, crazy bugs. Um, so you have all these unique environments. So, I mean, what we're noticing with just the, the body of sightings that we have, you know, uh, in terms of the online databases, other things in terms of, you know, not just me specifically, just Bigfoot in general, what we have is a lot of examples of behaviors that seem to be the same in certain areas. So you'll get the same types of stuff, wood knocks and whoops and stuff like that in, in the South as you'll get in the East or in the Pacific Northwest. So there does seem to be some characteristics, but I guess the descriptions vary a little bit. It seems down South, they're a little bit shorter and maybe a little bit shaggier with the hair. Um, whereas uh, the Pacific Northwest and, and the Northeast to my knowledge, Midwest as well, like Minnesota and those areas, the sightings typically are that almost patty of the Patterson Gimlin kind of consistency. It's that really short kind of fine hair, not as not as shaggy, but I mean, I've heard descriptions all across the board with beards, with no beards, with patchy fur, gray ones. Um, I guess one of the interesting things is when you do get like a rash of sightings that happens in an area, if there's this, a particular creature that's being described, like there's, sight, there's been sightings in, there was one case here in New Hampshire that, you know, I, I've actually learned some new information about it, that it may, may have been a prank that kind of turned into this hysteria sort of thing, but they were reporting a blondish colored Sasquatch and it was described multiple times that sort of same color. So was that just a creature maybe passing through an area uh, that came through the area once in search of whatever, or maybe moving on to another area, didn't come back in that area. Um, but, uh, you know, you have the story of the wood devils in Northern New Hampshire and they're described as tall, and gray, you know, very skinny. That's the description. That's an old logging story from probably the late 1800s. Still kind of trying to track that down. And I've been told by folks that grew up in that area and it's called Coaz County. They talked about their grandparents, you know, scaring them with the story of the wood devils. Don't go too far in the woods out of camp or the wood devils will get you. 
and that sort of thing. So the description was tall and gray. I mean, there are reports of gray Sasquatch if these things are some sort of a primate, which they seem to be, or related to humans on that spectrum, you know, not, you know, because I don't necessarily think they're a gorilla, but they're not a human either. There's something, seems to be something else onto itself. There are different descriptions of hair color. You get the classic, the, the black or dark brown sort of color. You've got that light white color as well. Maybe that's an older creature, gray, a blondish, orangish. There's a lot of variation, especially with a lot of the eyewitness descriptions of the faces and the facial features. There's a wide spectrum. It seems to be some are more primate-like, some are more human-like. Um, so I don't know if that would have to do with maybe species variation. Like some people look very different from others. Um, in what degree, you know, other primates have that sort of characteristic as well. I mean, uh, gorillas and chimps and orangutans seem to be more similar, you know, than they are kind of different in terms of the crazy variations that that we as humans have. I mean, uh, so yeah, that's it's interesting. You know, it's it's one of those things that it's so hard to really speculate about any of it because we have we while we do have a lot, I would say, in terms of anecdotal evidence and you know, body of footprints and unknown hair samples and a lot of strange vocalizations, we still don't have a lot at the same time. So it's, we do and we don't, because a lot of it's so speculative. We've never seen these things doing, you know, a lot of the things that other species do that we can kind of observe and get in there and really study for a while. So we're left with a lot of guessing, a lot of hypothesizing, and a lot of being proven wrong, a lot of not really finding anything out. And I think it's a slow process, but uh, we've really only been studying these things, if you want to call it that, for since the 1960s, 1950s and 60s. So relatively speaking, that's a pretty short amount of time. Sure. Now, um, when you were talking about the different, the different regions, it reminded me of, I think it was the last time that you were out here and Tommy was in the cabin and we were watching rescue bots with him. Yes. <laughs> they referenced... A Bigfoot, right? It was a, some sort of monster. It was Which so one, strange. What was that? I can't remember the name of that creature now. Yeah, it was like a Transformers kids cartoon kind of yeah, like spin-off show. Was, yeah. And I know it very well because Tommy made me watch it about seven times in a row. And every time <laughs> right. it would be every time we'd pause, he'd start the episode from the beginning. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I heard the description so many times, but it was the it was an episode that was taking place in Maine. And they okay. talked about the main ridge monster, main ridge which monster. is a super specific sort of local Bigfoot story that, that and it kind of struck to, it's, you know, it, it stuck in my head. I was like, main ridge monster. I've heard that before. And it brought me to, okay, that Michelle Soulier. So Michelle Soulier is an author up here in Maine. Uh, she kind of knows Lauren Coleman and the Cryptozoology Museum, I guess her bookstore was right next to where the Cryptozoology Museum was at one point. She's always been interested in the weird main stuff. And she just put out a book in um, 2021 called uh, Bigfoot in Maine, I think is the name of the book. It's a fantastic book. I have it um, kind of like right over here somewhere. But uh, it's all about uh, her basically decades long uh, work into Bigfoot in Maine and interviewing eyewitnesses. And she's an absolutely fantastic author, a very, th very thorough and treats the subject with respect. So um, I remember she wrote about the main ridge monster and it must've been the late, you know, 2008, something like that into that time period. And it was a story about the main ridge monster, which was this sort of local story in, in part of central Maine of this Bigfoot like creature scene. And there's almost nothing online about it. 
So I, I messaged Michelle after that happened. I was like, so I'm watching this Transformers thing with uh, Seth's son, Tommy, and they referenced the main Ridge monster. And to my knowledge, the only source I could find for it is your website, your blog article about the main Ridge monster from that time period. And she's like, that is the strangest thing I've ever heard. So oh, she might aware of it. No, they might have used her research for this main Ridge monster because, you know, it's a very, very specific Bigfoot sort of story. Yeah, they could have they could have picked any other amount of you know the Boggy Creek monster, the skunk ape, whatever, whatever reason they chose this main ridge monster. And it was some kind of mutant creature, you know, guy that was eating food and turning into a mutant in the show. But that is a actual story, the main ridge monster. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it was entertaining to see your face whenever you were like, did they just did they just see the main ridge monster? I, I know couldn't that. believe it. So if you look it up, if you look up the term main ridge monster, you'll get the two first. Uh, results. The first one is a Transformers wiki, and it talks about, you know, the the uh, this story. The second article is Strange Maine, which is Michelle's blog, and it called about, about the Main Ridge Monster. And this is from Wednesday, October nineteenth, two thousand five. That's when she wrote it. That specific article, and and then the the third report is uh, Sasquatch Chronicles. You know, somebody talking about uh, the Main Ridge Monster. So. It's pretty interesting. Definitely very, very specific sort of Bigfoot story. And um, I was I, I was definitely shocked when I heard the Transformers spinoff referencing that. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, so you talked about when you, how old were you whenever you first came to New York? Is that where you said you moved when you first came? Yeah, New York City. I hated it, but uh, New York City. I'm not, a, I'm not a big city guy at this point. I don't think that's a secret to anybody, but uh, I was uh, three or four when we came over here. It was the mid nineties. Yeah. And where were you before that? Well, I was born in South Africa, actually. South Africa. So yeah, any... my... Go ahead, finish. No, no. My parents went there. They, their former home country of Yugoslavia was falling apart due to civil war. This was after you know, communism fell. It was just a mess. They went to South Africa. South Africa started getting kind of dangerous. So we ended up here. That was kind of the, the crazy globe trotting I guess I did before I was even aware of what that yeah. term meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, are the, have you looked into cryptid stories from either area, whether it was South Africa or the area that was Yugoslavia? Yes. Yeah. I've looked into both. I'm actually really interested, especially South Africa, because I don't know a whole lot about it. I've only ever been back once. So I don't, I don't really have a connection to that land really at all and it's a beautiful beautiful place i mean the cradle of human civilization all those discoveries of the the australopithecines and other you know human-like creatures that lived in that area uh there's one story that i always heard of which was called the Inkanyamba, which was this serpent-like creature in an area called howick falls which was this waterfall and there was a river that that ran that was kind of the terminus of the the waterfall and there was this deep pool in there supposedly there was a serpent-like creature that lived in this pool the locals called it the Inkanyamba, and they believed that when there was a rainy season you know this it was this creature was responsible for lightning and thunder it would fly out of the river or the falls and go up into the clouds and cause uh, you know thunder to rain down so that's their sort of folklore story but supposedly some of the the white settlers there you know whether it's Afrikaners or uh British English sort of people talked about seeing this creature or goats being eaten at the waterfall and dragged in by the serpent and you know I think it's it's a little bit of a dubious story in terms of the modern sightings I think it's certainly there's some folklore there but there is a photo that was circulating I remember watching one documentary I've ever seen on that creature I think it was Animal X they did a lot of really interesting stuff back in the day it was it was this show that I definitely recommend it's 
it, people will find it amusing. But they did some really cool cryptids that have not been covered. I haven't seen anyone else do uh, a lot of these cryptids. I mean, Monster Quest, uh, Doug Hycheck and those guys did a lot of cryptids, but Animal X was before that time. It was sort of this X-Files. They, they were kind of going off of the popularity of X-Files and they casted the characters that, you know, this this female that looked just like kind of Scully and they had a dude who kind of looked like Mulder and the yeah. theme song was like, uh, you know, the X-Files kind of sounding. It was a really yeah. great show. And they had, um, you know, all sorts of crazy cryptids and stories that they covered. The Ultima Ha creature in Georgia, the, the uh, Megalania in Australia, but they covered the Inconyamba as well. And they there was a guy there who claimed to have a photo of it. And he's standing in the sort of foreground and in the back, you see this this giant serpent-like thing sticking out. It looked kind of convincing at the time. You know, not now I look at a photo of it and it's it's probably most likely a, a fake, you know, a creature of that size living in this pool that, yeah, maybe it is a couple hundred feet deep, but it's where a waterfall ends and goes into a smaller kind of creek. So it'd be hard pressed to say something could survive in that area. But that's one that I was always kind of aware of. Another one that I've just recently learned of is actually kind of a South African Bigfoot called the Otang. And this was something I actually found out about uh, through, it must've been either Cliff and Bobo's podcast, maybe Sasquatch Tracks, one of those two sources, but there was this guy in South Africa named Gareth Patterson. I had him on my live stream show a couple months ago here. Absolutely fascinating guy. He uh, worked rescuing lions across Africa from the canned lion industry, which is you know basically hunting lions on the game preserves. He was rescuing troops of lions and he was living with them. And basically they thought of him as another lion. So this guy has an extensive uh, background in, you know, animal conservation and working with some of the incredible wildlife in, in Africa, not just in South Africa, all over Africa. He actually rediscovered a group of supposedly lost elephants in a forest in the Southern tip of South Africa in the Nizna forest. There's these uh, sort of semi-tropical rainforest down there and there was this group of elephants that were thought to basically only number in a few there were maybe a few of them left that they were extinct he managed to find there was probably a dozen or more individuals in this group that were hiding in this forest i mean we're talking elephants yeah african elephants hiding in yeah. the jungles that people weren't really aware of they managed to stay yeah. hidden for that long along that way he discovered he was told stories of this uh man-like creature that people would see in the forest and that these tourists that had seen it were actually very upset because the locals didn't tell them about this baboon-like creature that and, you know they thought oh well, did you see a baboon they said no we saw what looked like a hairy man-like creature uh, gareth actually saw has seen these things multiple times and has since talked to uh, some of the tribes in the area who used to live there in places like south africa was the the bushmen and the cohesion people and those people don't really their their numbers are dwindling you've had other migrations from not only uh, you know, European colonizers, but uh, folks from other parts of Africa, the Zulus primarily came down into South Africa fairly recently, you know, in terms of uh, the Bush people were there for tens of thousands of years. I mean, there's Bushman paintings all throughout the mountains in South Africa in these areas where, you know, which again is so interesting because that's where the Australopithecines and so many of these early human kind of creatures were discovered. So you have a history of reports and, and that's what Gareth had was, was telling me all about was you had these history reports of these hairy hominid-like creatures across South Africa in these remote areas and then into other parts of Africa as well. And Africa, you know, is a place that has a, not only because of those early human discoveries, but you have gorillas and chimps. So you have known primates, great apes that are living in these areas. And a lot of Africa is still largely unexplored and inaccessible due to conflicts or, you know, just very tough situations to get into some of these places. So 
Uh, I found that really interesting. Uh, so I've been learning a lot about the Otang the past few months, which I, I didn't know a whole lot about until I heard about Gareth's story. And, you know, he's not a big footer. He's a guy who rescues animals and, and really knows wildlife. And he's claiming that he's seen these things and he's talked to many other people who have. Uh, and it's it's kind of gone completely under the radar, I think, of people in the Bigfoot world. So um, supremely fascinating to, to know that there's that possibility in a place that already has sort of a precedent for hairy hominids and hominids right. existing, you know? Yeah, it already is is a place where that can thrive, so. Right, and those environments, I mean, are just, uh, they're incredible. So the possibilities are there. I mean, I just, nobody's really looking into it. So I'm, I'm hoping we can change that at some point. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so for people that have watched Beyond the Trail, you've gone to several different places and I know that there's plenty more on the docket, but of the places that you've gone to already, what would be, I, I hate to say favorite because I'm sure that there's favorite no. parts of all of them, but is there one that you kind of feel like if you could go back right now and spend more time there because there was some impression that was left upon you, what place would that be? Yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to go back now because it's probably like seven feet of snow. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> but, barring um, <laughs> horrible weather. In the summertime, um, probably the high Uinta Mountains of Utah. Um, for folks that are, I don't know, they're probably watching this right after it sort of comes out. This episode is not out yet. I think Eli actually just texted me about this episode. He's, he's kind of going to be editing it. So um, that's when we filmed sort of during our, Beyond the Trail Blitz, as I call it, where we went to, we drove, we drove from Ohio to Colorado to Utah and then back to Ohio where we did the Monster Minerva, the Rocky Mountain Sasquatch episode that came out a couple months ago. That was also um, during that trip. It was sort of the end of the summer of 2021. And we were in the high Uinta Mountains of Utah, which is a place I've always wanted to go backpacking in because it's, it's one of the most remote parts of Utah, basically. I mean, Utah has a lot of desert, a lot of these incredible red rock landscapes like around Moab and Arches National Park, beautiful, beautiful landscapes, but you know, not really known for Bigfoot because it's the middle of the desert, sort of it's high desert. Whereas the, the High Uintas is sort of an offshoot of the Rocky Mountains, which run from New Mexico up into basically uh, almost Alaska at that point. And it runs through Colorado and then that part of Utah, but they're sort of an offshoot geologically. And there are these really interesting, massive mountains with a lot of forest and, you know, kind of alpine areas in, in within the high Uintas and kind of a backpacker's paradise because there's no way to drive really into some of these areas. We had to drive, I think we were coming in from Colorado, we had to drive up into Wyoming to drive around the mountain range entirely to come back into Utah to go and then go north because that's the way the roads work. There's no roads or anything in there. There's only hiking trails. So that's the only way in and out is basically by foot unless you're going with a helicopter to get rescued or whatever. But um, that's it, you know, so it's it's a national forest. The uh, Ashley National Forest, I believe, is what it's part of. It's part of two forests. I think that's one of them. But there's the High Uintas Wilderness Area specifically. So there was an area that I've heard of reports from in the past. And I thought this is a perfect place for these things to probably live relatively unmolested by humans because there's tons of game in there. You've got moose, elk, deer. Um, you know, there are mountain lions in that area. There's some bears at times, although not as much for some reason in that those elevations. So I thought, you know, this would be a great spot. And I've, I've the only really reports I've ever heard from that area, aside from maybe a few on the BFRO website in campgrounds that are kind of closer to where the roads are, 
are from backpackers forums, people talking about, I experienced this weird thing at a summer camp while we were backpacking in the Hayuintas in the 70s and saw one of these things, or we had rocks thrown at us or whatever the case may be. And I, I just really like those non-Bigfoot community sort of sources for reports because I think they're really interesting. You know, these people don't have an interest in you know, sharing their Bigfoot story if they're not doing it. You know, they're, they're doing it on a hiking website or a hiking forum. So I would love to go back to the Hayuintas because we hiked in about six miles at, at the almost well, was above 10,000 foot um, mark. And so the oxygen, you know, you start losing oxygen up there. It was, it was a tough hike. And, you know, I'm a backpacker and hiker, and it was definitely rough for both Eli and I, but we had some pretty strange stuff happen immediately while being up in that area. And we spent, you know, three days in that we, we hiked in, spent a full day in there and hiked out that following day. Uh, and it was just absolutely interesting. The environment was crazy because you're basically surrounded by these 12 to 13,000 foot mountains on either side. And you're in this little valley with just a lot of pine trees with a blue alpine lakes all over the place and just woods and there's so there's only a certain amount of space where something could exist in this area and we found evidence of moose scat right away uh, right off the hiking trail lots of water sources so um i don't know we we had some possible wood knocking kind of stuff going on and i don't want to give away too much and because uh, that will be in the episode because you'll be able to hear this audio i mean we got some strange audio i still haven't even uh, reviewed the actual audio from that um, from the overnight audio that we had there, I got to, that's just a very time consuming process. You got to go inspect a gram and listen to everything on there. So I will be doing that here soon, but um, yeah, it was just so interesting uh, just being in that area. And it, it was just, I don't know, I can't even describe words how it was. It was probably one of my favorite places I've ever backpacked into between the views and just how incredible it was. And uh, you know, I think that's a place that possibly could turn up results of something. If you stay there long enough, I'd love to stay a few weeks in an area like that, you know, see what right. that is truly like at that elevation. Yeah. So um, at the end of every show, I ask my guest to tell me a story, but I want to set up a scenario for you before I ask for the story. Sure. So the scenario would be something that isn't on beyond the trail, but it was a Sasquatch related thing while you've been out backpacking, or maybe you don't know that it's Sasquatch, but something really weird that happened to you while out exploring. Can you share that story? Yeah, totally. Uh, this is a pretty new, pretty relatively new one. I uh, was not really expecting anything, but uh, it happened over the summer in between when we were out in the Pacific Northwest and we went to the Rocky Mountains. So there was a couple of weeks in between there and I was actually going to a Champ Day event, a Lake Champlain Monster event in Port Henry, New York on Lake Champlain with a buddy of mine, Carrick St. Laurent, who is a fellow New Hampshireite and Bigfoot and cryptozoology researcher, you know, awesome guy. And we were both kind of, we weren't really speakers at the event. We were like special guests. So we had like a booth and all that stuff. And it was just a fun time. But we had to, from New Hampshire, it's about two and a half, three hour drive to uh, Lake Champlain. So along the way, we left on like a Friday night and we camped in the Green Mountain National Forest in Vermont at a spot that my brother recommended to me. You know, this like these dead end campsites that you just drive on these terrible dirt roads and you get to like a dead end and you have a campsite. Perfect campsite. That's the kind of stuff I love. Yes. National yes. Forest campsites. So we get into this one area and it's, it's already dark at that point. So it must have been around. Oh, it was, it was getting dark. It was about 839. So that's right about when it gets starts getting dark in, during the summertime. We get into this campsite and we're just kind of hanging out. We set up and all that stuff. We do a fire, 
whatever. We set up the tent. Um, the weather forecast was looking pretty good. There wasn't any rain in the forecast, so we didn't put the rain fly on. So we could just look at the stars in the tent. But, you know, we weren't really looking to do any Bigfoot-related stuff. We were just sort of there because we had to go super early the next morning to get to Lake Champlain. So I'm like, ah, you know what? Should we just set up a Sasquatch pheromone chip just for the heck of it? So like, yeah, all right, whatever. We set up on a tree outside of camp in the woods. And then we did some wood knocks and I kind of ran around and did a little bit of wood knocking and whatever. We settled in. And then that next morning around six or so in the morning, I get woken up by what I thought were three wood knocks from the woods. And I'm just kind of laying there and I, I, I always have audio recording at night. Yeah. And when something interesting happens, when something interesting yeah. happens, the audio is always dead or something yep. wrong. So I checked yeah. my audio recorder, it was off. Oh. So I turn it back on and maybe 15, 20 minutes later, uh, Carrick uh, wakes up and goes use the bathroom, comes back, lays down. We hear just one, Shh. he immediately turns to me, says, did you hear that? And I said, yeah, I did. Audio was rolling that time. Um, and we're just kind of like laying there, just listening, see if we can hear anything else. At that point, we got seven different objects that were either thrown or fell in our direction. Um, basically, I was laying right here, Carrick was here in the tent. And then right in this area was this sort of dip that went into the woods. And there was just nothing but forest back there. I mean, it goes up into the mountain. And um, we started seeing from a distance things in an arch pattern traveling through the trees and flying towards and landing maybe five, six feet from the tent in this sort of dip right because there's like a lip that comes up to where the campsite is and all around it is just trees. And I have the videos of the sounds and the analysis. I've done two videos on it on my YouTube channel, Sasquatch Out of the Shadows, because it was very weird, but seven different things right after one after another within like 10 to 30 seconds between each throw, mm -hmm. things were flying at us and they were pretty loud. And I'm like, I mean, is it possible that there's a squirrel, you know, in the tree doing this, but how could a squirrel cause such large objects <laughs> right. to fall in a sustained pattern when they were clearly coming from a distance and arching mm -hmm. coming down because you could see the leaves move as, as something was flying through uh, and immediately after that ended seven objects later you know we tried to film it through the tent but I mean it's just so much leaf foliage you can't really see a whole lot we get out of the tent we start walking in that direction there's a couple other things that sound like they crash and, and fall around and we're just really confused and it's extremely thick in this area so we started going to the right and then we kind of doubled back, went back to camp. And then we're like, all right, let's go up this area. Cause there's what looks like an old trail that's been completely overgrown. And what I mean is there's probably three foot tall bushes where this trail used to be. So we go right into there and we get to this area where there's a grove of trees, where there's a little bit softer uh, forest floor where you can kind of walk without making too much noise. It's this grove of pine trees. And that area, if you sit up there, you have a perfect view of the camp but you can't really see, I mean, you can see the tent vaguely. If, if you know there are people there, you'd be able to sit there and just watch them and not, not be noticed at all. And so we thought that was really weird. There was nothing up there that we found. So we just kind of like, okay, well, we had to get going anyway. I managed to return there in October and, and did an, a kind of the same, got the same campsite because um, it's not like a campsite that you book. There's nobody there that takes care of it. It's just a, a primitive, you know, kind of um, campsite in the national forest. So couple other times I've driven by there, somebody was in that particular campsite and just using it. So the, the time I made it back in October, we did a test where we had somebody go up into that area and, and throw first sticks and logs and then rocks to see what maybe matched that sound better. Uh, and it sounded like rocks sounded a little bit more matching what it was, but 
Um, that was that was super weird. And I cannot, of course, say that it was Sasquatch related. I have no idea. It was just, I mean, you can ask Carrick. I'm sure he'll tell you the same thing. Um, it was just a weird event that we were just completely shocked because we were not expecting anything. And uh, you know, the fact that we had a Sasquatch pheromone chip out and did wood knocks, I don't know if that played a part in it. Is it just us you know, thinking that maybe it was Sasquatch because stuff was happening? But I, I just find it hard to believe that a squirrel could cause that sort of damage in a sustained pattern when even somebody uh, like a human being, we did the recreation throwing objects couldn't come close to the sound in terms of how far they could throw and all that sort of stuff. Cause it was a far, it would be a far throw, mm -hmm. but I imagine something like a Sasquatch and we get reports of rock throws and that sort of stuff all the time, probably more powerful than humans in general. I mean, other apes oh, are yeah. three, three times more powerful. Like a chimp could outthrow any human and they're right. you know, half our size, but they're just <laughs> three times yeah. the strength of an adult male. So imagine something like what a Sasquatch is reported to be. So that's my, that's one of my weird stories. You know, there are plenty that are like yeah. that. I've never had a visual, but we've just had these weird sort of things that happen every once in a while that, especially when you're not expecting it, that's always when they happen. That's when the weirdness <laughs> happens. And that was, that was the one that happened back in August in between. And ironically wasn't when doing beyond the trail, it was right. just some random little weekend in Vermont. <laughs> yeah. That's how that works. Oh man. Yep. Well, Thanks for coming on with me. Can you tell everybody where they can find you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the easiest place is probably, you know, my website, Petakov Media. It's P-E-T-A-K-O-V media.com. It's got links to everything, all the Beyond the Trail episodes. Obviously, you can watch those on this channel. I actually have a YouTube channel called Sasquatch Out of the Shadows, and we do a live stream over there, and I'll do other videos. Like, sometimes we'll do kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, I'll do live streams while we're on Beyond the Trails, you know, just a random live stream, like in the Redwoods or wherever we're going. So the website's probably the easiest place because it'll lead you to everything else. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys can catch uh, Alex and Eli traveling all over the country on Beyond the Trail on our channel here on Small Town Monsters. Um, if you like this episode, please like and subscribe. And you can always leave a comment below if you have any suggestions of who I can talk to next. And thanks again, Alex, for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on, Heather. <laughs> Looking forward to getting back out in the woods with uh, all you guys soon. Heck yeah. Get, get, get back to the Nerva, okay? <laughs> Bigfoot is calling. I must go. That's right. <laughs> Until next time. Bye.